If you got a Bible, open to Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. My name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad to have you with us. If you're a guest with us, uh, you would have found one of these little cards on the seat where you're seated. On uh, one side of that is a place for prayer requests. If there's things that we can pray with you or for you about in your life, it would be our honor to do so. Uh, we, we've seen God move and answer and respond as we've asked, sought, and knocked. And so um, we would invite you to submit any prayer requests that we can pray with you or for you about. On the other side of that is a place for a little information about yourself. Uh, so we can send you some information about us, answer any questions you might have about Redeemer and help you navigate uh, how to get connected here if this is where God's leading you uh, to plug your life in in the context of a local church. Uh, Ruth chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Uh, we'll read verses 1 to 13 together. Let me catch you up to where we are in the story a little bit if you're new with us or haven't read the book of Ruth before. Um, Ruth uh, is, is Naomi's daughter-in-law. It's the story of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and her husband uh, left Bethlehem in a season of famine and they moved to the neighboring country of Moab, set up shop there, lived there for a number of years. Elimelech, her husband, died, was buried in a foreign land. Her two sons took Moabite daughters Ruth and Orpah eventually her two sons died ended up buried in a foreign land as well um, then Naomi hears that God had relieved the famine in Bethlehem he had visited his people to bless them once again there was food in the storehouses and so she sets out to return to Bethlehem and her two daughters-in-law say hey we're signing up to go with you so on the way back she says listen you are fools if you come back with me I have nothing for you I can't provide for you there's nothing back for you back there for you in Bethlehem other than in pain, sorrow, suffering, sadness. So one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, returns back to her family's home. Ruth, it says, the Bible says, clings to Naomi. He clings to her out of a commitment that she'd already come to in her heart as she was converted to Naomi's God. So she returns with Naomi back to Naomi's people. And so they find themselves returning back to Bethlehem and Naomi's in a position of just bitterness and brokenness and barrenness. And she's very, she's bereft. She's lost everything ounce of security that she has in this world. In the loss of her husband's and two, husband and two sons, sold her land, she can't go back, she can't remarry, she's past that age, remarriageable age. She's now in a position where she has no land, she has no progeny, she has no hope, she has no future. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And that's how chapter one ends. And we pick up chapter two with Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem, settled in, and now having to figure out how they're gonna eat, right? One of those logistical questions they had not quite yet considered. And so Ruth chapter two, beginning in verse one, you wanna follow along, you can read it with me. If it's, you don't have a copy, it'll be on the screen behind me for you to follow along with us. It says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. 
So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, I don't know about you, but, have you ever, but for me, I've had plans for my life. You ever had plans for your life? Lots of us have had plans for our lives, haven't we? The Proverbs say that many of the plans of a man's heart, but it's the Lord that directs his steps, right? We can set out an agenda for ourselves and we can have a bulleted list of all the things that we are going to accomplish, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's God who determines where our feet fall, right? The Bible's clear about that over and over and over and over again, and we see that very clearly on this page of the scriptures this morning. And so I got one point for us this morning out of this text, right? There's more, so we're going to come back to it next week. Um, I did this a few weeks ago to you. There's more here, but we're going to come back to it. But I got one point for you this morning. But before we get to that point, I want to set up the context a little bit for you so you can feel kind of the weight of where we're going with what God is saying to us through his word this morning, right? For all of us who are type A planners and agenda setters, this is going to kind of rock us a little bit, okay? And we're going to have to just kind of hold on, buckle our seatbelts and go along for the ride, Okay, because here's what's going on in the text. Whenever Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem, they come back and they find themselves settled back in and they have to feed themselves now. And so we get a glimpse in chapter two, verse one of the fact that this, there's a, there's a distant relative or a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, who Naomi in her bitterness and brokenness and bereftment had must have forgotten about that was still living in the land of Bethlehem who was single and his name is Boaz. And the text says he's a worthy man. And so we kind of get a, it's like, it's like the scene's being set for us and the camera's panning onto the field of Boaz and you maybe see him interacting with his harvesters and his reapers and his servants. He's a worthy man. We see that in his character that we'll see more next week. But what you see here in the text is that we kind of get a glimpse into that. Now Naomi and Ruth doesn't know who this man is. She has no idea who Boaz is. But she says to her mother-in-law, as the, kind of, the camera pans in onto the place where they are staying, she says to her mother-in-law, listen, let me go out and glean behind the reapers and gather from among the sheaves. And her mother-in-law says, my daughter, go, right? She, she, she's not asking, Ruth's not asking permission here, nor is Naomi mandating that she go out and do it. Ruth, of her own initiative, steps forward and says, let me go out and do something so that we can have food to eat, put food on the table. And so she says, yes, she blesses her and sends her out the door. She goes to glean. Now listen, gleaning in the, in, in the ancient Israelite culture um, was somewhat akin to the modern day welfare system. 
God had put provisions into the law for his people, and not only for his people, but for sojourners, aliens, strangers in the land, for the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, and those who were traveling through. And those provisions that he sets in the law to provide for those who did not have land, who did not have, who did not have a job, necessarily, is he, is he says, listen, in your fields, whenever you plant and you harvest your crops, as, as your seed springs up and the grain rises from the ground, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 10, you see God's deep care for the poor and the sojourner because he makes this provision for them. And listen to what he says in Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard bare neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner I am the Lord your God in other words don't maximize your profits by taking out everything that you can for yourself but leave some in for those who have no other way to provide for themselves. So as they come along, they can glean from the corners of the field, the edges of the field that you have left standing, for, and that's my provision for them because I care about the poor, and I care about the alien, and I care about the sojourner. Even though they're not a part of, maybe not, not a part of my covenant people, I still have a care and concern for them. God has always had a care and concern for the poor. God has always had a care and concern for the fatherless. God has always had a care and concern for the alien, the stranger, and the sojourner. Always. That's a, that's a sermon for another day, so we've got to keep moving. But again, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we see it again in Moses' farewell sermon. He's got a concern for the widow as well. He says, when you reap, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fathers, and the widow, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Now listen, in our story, Ruth qualifies on all accounts. She is poor and destitute. She has no way to provide for herself. She is a widow. And she is a foreigner. In a land and among a people that were not her own. She was not born as a part of the covenant people of Israel. But this is where she finds herself because of her commitment to Israel's God and commitment to Naomi to return with her. So she qualifies on all accounts and yet she did not have the proper pedigree. Now listen, even though, we said this before, even though this was a provision God made in his law of how his people were to conduct themselves in righteousness and care and concern for those who could not provide for themselves. This is the day of the judges. A day we said in a couple of weeks ago in which Israel found God to be useful for some things, but useless in others. In other words, there's some parts of God's provision that they tried to access and other parts that they tried to deny. And so it was a crapshoot in these days, just tossing the dice, where's it gonna land? And the kind of feel, the kind of owner, the kind of character of the person that you might go out and glean amongst his reapers. Would you even find access there as a Moabite? And listen, the author of Ruth is wanting to highlight her identity, and he does it over and over and over again in chapter two. Listen, in Ruth chapter two, verse two, she is Ruth the Moabite. Even though we already know who she is, where she's coming from, the narrator writes that into the story. Ruth the Moabite said to her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
Again, in, chat, in verse six, she's the young Moabite on the lips of the foreman of the field who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. In verse 10, she falls to her knees and asks Boaz, why in the world would you show such favor to me who is one who is a foreigner, a sojourner, an alien, a stranger to your people? Over and over again in chapter two, her identity is highlighted and the author is trying to highlight that in the days of the judges, the odds were stacked against her as a young, single, foreign woman who was at the mercy of the men in the field and even though the law provided for people in her position, there was no guarantee in those days that she would be granted the right to glean. And that if she was gonna find a place where she could provide for herself and for her mother-in-law, it would all be grace. It would all be grace. That's what the author is highlighting for us and that's why she says in verse two to her mother-in-law, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. More on that next week. That's just the background. So that brings us to my point this morning for all you type A folks who love the plan. Uh, and hear me on this. As, as you read through this story, it gets more and more interesting as we go. Because here's what you see in the ver- first three verses of this, of, of this text that we've read this morning is this, is there's nothing, nothing that happens to happen. Right? There is nothing that just happens to happen. Look, in verse three, I love the way the Hebrew words this. Whenever you read it in the, its, it's, its original language, you get underneath where in most of our English translations it says this. It says, now she happened upon a field belonging to Boaz, who happened to be the kinsman of Elimelech, her deceased father-in-law of his clan. Right? She just happens upon the field. And the way the Hebrew words it, it's, it's redundant in its wording. Because there's two words there that our English word happened kind of summarizes. And it says she, if we translated it literally, it would read this, that she happened by chance upon the field belonging to Boaz. Now listen, in those days, there were no neon signs that pointed down saying the field of Boaz, right? They didn't exist. They were boundary markers and stones set throughout the fields to designate whenever you left one field and went into the other. And you, you knew as a landowner where your property ended and your neighbor's property began, but it wasn't always clear to those who were walking through the fields whose field they may have been in at any given time. And even if she did know whose field she was in, what his name was, she had no idea of his relation to Elimelech, her deceased father-in-law. We only know that because the narrator introduced us to him that way in verse one. She's not reading this story. She's living it. Right? There is nothing that just happens to happen. That The narrator, the author highlights that for us in the way that he words it. That she happened by chance upon the field belonging to Boaz. And then you get down to verse 4 in the text. And I love the way it's worded. In my, in my English translation it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So Ruth shows up into the field belonging to Boaz, the kinsman of Elimelech, her deceased father-in-law, 
And it just so happened that at that time, behold, Boaz comes riding in from Bethlehem to check on his workers and the progress in his fields as they harvest and bring the grain to the floors. He just happens to show up. Now listen, if we were to write it in our vernacular today, we might say something along these lines. Because the word literally means look, and if we translate it, we might say, well, look at what we have here. Boaz just showing up at the same time Ruth is showing up to glean. See, the author of the text is wanting us to understand that there is nothing, nothing that just happens to happen in life. There's nothing that happens to happen. Listen, one, one, one author said it this way, he, in talking about the providence of God. I've talked about the providence of God a lot this series because it's one of the major themes in the book of Ruth. But what I want to do this morning is just drill down and kind of untie that knot a little bit. We said it's the knot between God's, it's formed between the threat of God's goodness and the threat of God's sovereignty. Tie those two things together, you got God's providence. He's governing personal and global affairs for his glory and for our good. But let's untie that knot a little bit and consider what God's providence looks like and drill down a little bit further into it. Because that's what's going on here. Whenever he, the, the, the author says, there's nothing that happens to happen. God is providential over all things. He's governing all things. He's guiding all things. Both in your, my, the microcosm of your personal affairs and the macrocosm of global events. That he's governing, governing everything. One author said it this way, though. It's hard for those of us on this side of God's providence, isn't it? And one author said, God's providences the way that God governs our affairs, can, the only way to make sense of them is the same way that you make sense of the Hebrew language. You gotta read them backwards. Because Hebrew is written, instead of being written from left to right, it's written from right to left. And so you gotta read it backwards. And God's providences have to be read backwards in our lives. And that's hard for those of us who are in the midst of them right now. Particularly whenever God's providences are stormy in our lives or cloudy and foggy in our lives and we can't, 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 that's my Louisiana education betraying me right there, you can't make sense, (laughs) can't make sense of what lies on the horizon or what you're in in the midst of the present. It's foggy, cloudy and stormy and it's hard for us because we can't sometimes see through that. On sunny days, it's great, right? Because we see where God, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food and everything else that he provides, right? But on the cloudy and stormy days, it's difficult for us because we can only read God's providences backwards. The way I would say it is this way, is that everything is so much clearer through the rearview mirror than it is through the windshield, isn't it? When you're, when you're driving down the road on, the, on, the, on your journey in life as you're looking through the windshield, so often, so often, it's hard to discern this turn from that turn to go straight. Do I stop and make a, do I make a U-turn and turn around and go, where do I go? But when you look through the rearview mirror, things kind of begin to fall into place as you read God's providences backwards in your life. That's the only way they can be read. If you try to read them forward, it's just speculation and oftentimes unhelpful speculation. But there is nothing that happens to happen. I've seen this in a couple of ways in my life over the last five to seven years. I'll start, I'll I'll, I'll go back the furthest and say, start there. Whenever I graduated from seminary in 2010 at Dallas Theological Seminary, it took me a long time to finish that degree, all right? I just ground it out as long as they would give me 
Right? They were getting ready to kick me out by the time I graduated. Like, we love your money, but you can't stay here much longer. Right? So I'm grinding out my seminary education and I finish up. And my wife and I had moved here from Louisiana thinking that God was going to bring us back to Louisiana. This is my plan, right? I'm a planner. It's my plan. We're going to move back to Louisiana. We're going to plant or pastor a church. So I graduate seminary in 2010. I begin to knock on doors, right, with all different kinds of churches that fell within a broad uh, doctrinal positions that I held and so I was knocking on doors in different denominations and churches and resumes that I would submit and phone calls that I would make and leave messages and emails that I would send some of the emails never got returned some of the phone calls never got returned even the denominational organizations who were saying we want to plant churches in Louisiana and I was calling them saying I'm a church planter who wants to go to Louisiana and plant a church and they wouldn't even call me back some of you are like, well, there's good reason for that. <laughs> I know you, right? But listen, as, as so I'm knocking on door and after door after door after door, and none of them would open. And then in 2011, my daughter was born. And whenever my daughter was born, many of you know the story. She was born with a birth defect called craniosynostosis and a premature fusion of her skull bone so her, brain couldn't her, her skull couldn't expand as her brain grew. And so at three months of age, they did a cranial vault surgery on her forehead, removed her entire forehead and replaced it, right? Reshaped it and put it all back together. So we had neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons, maxillofacial surgeons and pediatric ophthalmologists um, and all kinds of doctors working on her, right? And, and, and man, I loved our neurosurgeon. He was so gifted, but his bedside manner was terrible, right? He, basically what he told us is, like, I'm going to take Humpty Dumpty apart and the plastic surgeon is going to put him back together again. That's what, that's what he told us. Like, my daughter's not Humpty Dumpty, by the way, all right? <laughs> but that's what happened. They took apart her, her skull and they pieced it back together. At 18 months of age, she had the same thing done to the backside of her head and they pieced it back together. Subsequently to that, she had four eye surgeries on muscles trying to correct the alignment of her eyes to make them both look in the same direction at the same time. And so as I began to think back on why, why we were pounding on doors and none of them were opening, couldn't even get returned phone calls or emails, not even, hey, thank you for your submission, but we're going a different direction. None of that. Why? And looking back through the rearview mirror, if we had moved to Louisiana, much of the specialties that we had needed for her would have been here as a regional hub for medicine. And God knew something that we didn't know. And as I read his providences backwards in that season, you could see them coming together. Why did he keep us here? That was one reason. So fast forward a little bit, and, and, and back in 2015, um, the, a young lady who had been a member of a singles ministry that I led previously to coming to Redeemer as a lead pastor called me up one day. She said, Shannon, I'm getting married. And I was like, that's great. She's like, we want you to do the wedding. I was like, I would be honored to do the wedding. She was like, it's gonna be in Florida and we're gonna pay your way and your wife to come down and be with us on the beach for three days and you can perform the ceremony and be there with us and celebrate. And I'd be like, I was like, that is awesome. But listen, Patrice, I think you're selling yourself a little short. Why not think Tahiti, right? <laughs> she didn't go for that. So we ended up in Florida. 
right? But as, so she flew my wife and I in, and, and we stayed there with them for three days, did the wedding on the beach. It's beautiful. But the, the, one of the ladies that she flew in to sing was the worship leader at the church her and her fiance, now husband, were going to in Dallas. And so we meet them after the ceremony. We're sitting around a table together with them and just kind of getting to know them. We, well, lo and behold, right? He had just taken a superintendent's job of a school district just north of us in community ISD. He just became the superintendent there. And so we're getting to know, I didn't think anything of it at the time. We're getting to know each other and just kind of talking through, having conversations like you would as you're just kind of meeting strangers at a wedding reception. So about a year later, my wife bumps into him in town in Rockwall at a gas station as they're both filling up their cars because nothing just happens to happen. And he says, hey, listen, we're looking to hire a school nurse. Do you know anybody who's looking? She said, well, no, not right now, but, but I'll, I'll keep you guys in mind. If I hear anybody looking for a job, I'll pass your information along and those networks. And, and so he said, okay. Well, about three months after that, my wife is sitting in her office at one of the local hospitals where she'd started a diabetes education program and her, the HR director and her supervisor walk into her office and they say, hey, we're cutting your program. This is your last day. Pack your stuff. We appreciate your contribution. Um, we'll walk you out. <laughs> Alrighty then. And so she picks up the phone, interviewing different places. Everybody's looking to hire a nurse. Depends on how far she wanted to drive and what she wanted to do. But she calls the, the HR director at community, or she calls the superintendent. And he says, well, yes, we're still looking to hire. In fact, the school that we would lo- are looking to place somebody in has two kind of complicated diabetes cases there within the school. We could really use somebody with your specialty to come into the school and, and assist with those families and those kids. And so she interviewed, they basically offered her a job on spot and she started like two weeks later. Because nothing just happens to happen. But you don't know that on the front side. See, some of you are here this morning because nothing happens to happen in your life. Some of you are married to the person that you're married to because nothing happens to happen. And God has orchestrated in his providence in a way that he's brought you together. Some of you are Christians today because nothing happens to happen. And you read backwards God's providences in your life and you look through the rearview mirror and you see relationships that he brought into your life who were able to share the good news of Jesus with you in a time in which your heart was fertile and receptive and you responded and God saved you by his grace, with the gift of faith, that you would believe on Christ, which has altered your eternal destiny because nothing happens to happen. That's true in the book of Ruth and it's true in your, my, your life and my life as well. I look back and think about the cross country team that I began to run on as a sophomore in high school and a young man who began to invite me to church and then he and his buddies just showing up at my house one Wednesday night saying, you're coming with us. And it was that night that God gripped my heart and saved me because nothing happens to happen. Now listen, I'll take a moment this morning and just kind of push back on that a little bit because some of you wrestle with that. Because the providences of God don't always end with a happy story, do they? Not always. At least not here. At least not today. See, sometimes, not, 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 there's not always a happy ending. Not everyone gets healed. 
Not everyone, is their marriage is restored. Not everyone gets a job quickly whenever they lose their job. They interview for months and months and months and months looking for a new place of employment. Not everyone gets a, gets, uh, is able to conceive and bear a child. Not everyone is able to adopt. Not everyone is, has their career just kind of move up into the right. Some people just work job after job after job with really no career that they've invested themselves in. And some people, their ministries, rather than flourishing, they falter and fail. And some of us wrestle with that. We wrestle with suffering. We wrestle with disease. We wrestle with, if God really is sovereign, if he really is governing everything, and he really is good, then why is there so much pain and hardship and heartache and suffering in this world? If, really is, if God's providence really is the threat of his sovereignty and the threat of his goodness tied together, then why is all this mess in my life and mess in the global affairs? What is going on? If God really was sovereign and he could control all things, then he must not be good because if he was, then things would be better. Or if God really, if God really was, it really is just good, but he really has no control of everything, then I can understand that because he's just kind of rolling the dice as well and seeing how things are gonna fall. But if God really is both of those things, if he's both sovereign and good, how do we reconcile that? And there are some who have reconciled that by walking away from even a notion of there being a God. Like I can't believe in a God who both is governing all things and is good. So I've got to jettison either one of those two concepts that either God is good but he really is not in control or that God is in control but he's really not good or I've got to walk away from the notion of God altogether. But listen, that is a knot that theologians have been trying to untie for centuries. But here's what I want to say to you this morning about that. The one answer that you cannot come to the one answer that is off the table and removed from the testimony of the scriptures is this, is that it must not, even with all the suffering and hardship and heartache in your life, the answer must not be that God does not love you, that God is not for you as his child. And here's how I know that. Because whenever you look at the providences of God, Throughout human history, there is one place that they shine brightest and there is one place in which they are most glorious and that is at the cross. Listen to what the apostle Peter says in Acts chapter two as he speaks to the people who are gathered there on the day of Pentecost about what just took place in the crucifixion of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter two, verses 22 to 24, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, what you need to see this morning is this, is that even though there is evil, even though there is suffering, even though there is sickness and heartache and hardship, that God himself was not exempt from it, but a part of his providential plan was that he would participate in it, in the sending of his son, who according to the definite foreknowledge and God's ordained plan would be delivered up and crucified by the hands of lawless men. 
that Jesus would go to the cross not as kind of like a fourth down punt or Hail Mary pass. I don't know what we're going to do here because humanity is just not getting their act together. And so maybe now I've got to send my son. That was not how it went down from eternity past. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. It was God's plan before you and I ever breathed a breath before humanity ever existed on the face of this earth for him to redeem us by the sending of his son who would be slain in our place. And that God would raise him up. You see, God's providence has provided for your pardon because he loves you. Because he has affection for you and he is for you. That you might be forgiven even though there's all kinds of pain and suffering that exist in this world, he was not exempt for it and his providence is provided for your pardon, but not only is it provided for your pardon, it's also currently providing for your progress. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, his providence is moving you toward Christ's likeness, being formed into his image. In fact, As we read in Acts chapter two, if you skip over to John or go back to John chapter seven, verses 37 to 39, you're gonna find John write these words. As Jesus speaks in John seven, verse 37 and following, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And listen to what John says on the heels of Jesus' words. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John says the Spirit was, God was, the Father was waiting to send the Spirit until Christ had been glorified. And Peter says what took place at the cross was that Christ was crucified, that he was buried, that he was raised. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is glorified in the presence of God and all the angels. And so now the Spirit can come. And when the Spirit shows up, he begins to change things in our lives. We begin to make progress in Christ's likeness because the Spirit is the source of our sanctification. Your willpower is not the source of your sanctification. Your situations are not the source of your sanctification. The Holy Spirit that has been poured out because Christ was glorified, he is the source, the power at work in your life to form you into the image of Jesus. Your situations are merely the occasions for that. Merely the occasions for the Spirit to work in your life. But not only is He provided for your progress, He's also provided for your perfection. There's that great chain in Romans chapter 8. And Paul argues that for those whom He has justified, that He will glorify. See, there's a day that's coming in which the clouds will part and Christ will return and he will defeat all of his enemies. He will put them under his feet. He will throw Satan and all of the demons and all those who rebel against God into the lake of fire. And he will reign and rule forever. And there will one day be 
Look, I look forward to this. I don't know if you do, but there will one day be, no longer be a wrestling with sin. There will no longer be the wrestling with the remnants of the flesh in your life because Jesus will defeat all of that, throw it all into the lake of fire. It will be consumed and we will live and bask in his presence forever. And his providence and the sending of his son and the pouring out of his spirit and the returning of Christ because Jesus doesn't even know the day or hour in which he's gonna return. Only the father does, he says in Mark chapter 13. Only the father as much as we want to speculate about when that day is going to arrive, only the Father knows. And he is providentially working things in human history towards that end so that one day you and I will be perfect in his presence. So the answer to the question of why there's so much evil and suffering in the world cannot be because God does not love us, because his providence has provided for your pardon, for your progress, and for your perfection. So last, last question this morning before we close is this. So what do you and I do with this? Right? We read the graces and providences of God backwards in our lives. We look through the rearview mirror seeing how God has orchestrated and ordained events to transpire in our lives to, to make us into the people we are today as his Holy Spirit takes those situations and occasions for our sanctification and forms us into his image. But what do we do on this end of it? Because sometimes it's so foggy and so cloudy and so stormy, we don't know where to put our feet. Let me give you three things as we close. And the first one is this. Is that whenever things are very cloudy in your lives and very stormy in your life, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Is that you and I need to learn to rest in his presence when you cannot discern his purpose. Do you hear that? Because through the windshield, we keep trying to discern, what is, what is God doing? What is God doing? Where, where is he taking me? Where are we going? And sometimes, look, you, you have no, I don't have any idea. You don't have any idea. We're just along for the ride sometimes as God is moving us and shaping us and forming us. And whenever we don't know what God is doing, when we can't discern his purpose, what we need to learn to do is rest in his presence. Even in the, especially in the hard times especially in the painful times. Listen to what the author of the psalm says in Psalm 34. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Then in verse 18, he says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, when you and I are brokenhearted, does it feel like God is near us? Or does it feel like God is far from us? When you're brokenhearted, when I'm brokenhearted, it feels like God is distant and removed. But that's not true. The Bible says it's not true. The Bible says whenever you're hurting in hardship, whenever there's pain and sorrow and sadness in your life, the Bible says, even though it feels that God is so far away, that he's actually near to you who are crushed, to those who are brokenhearted. So even when you can't discern his purpose, you just rest and trust in his presence and you go to him in prayer and you cry out to him. And you, you pray, listen, in, 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 in traditional religion, here's what you're encouraged to do with your feelings, stuff them, right? You just stuff them down because nobody's supposed to have feelings, right? 
We're all just kind of robotic people of faith who know that everything's gonna be good and we're just gonna keep plowing forward and we're not gonna let anybody in. We're not gonna show any chinks in the armor. There's not gonna be any place for somebody to impale us or use that information against us. But you know what the Bible encourages us to do? Is to pray our emotions, not stuff them. And we bring them to God and we cry out to him because he's near to you. When you can't discern his purpose, you rest in his presence. The, f- the next thing is this, is, 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 I'll say it this way, is that the providences of God do not promote our passivity. You know that? We don't go, you know what? <laughs> I'm just gonna kick my feet up and I'm just gonna eat some potato chips and I'm gonna watch a game and then another game and then a Netflix series and then another game, right? I'm just gonna be passive. I'm not gonna take any active role in this. That's not what the providence of God promotes in your life. Look at Ruth. She doesn't sit at home with Naomi and go, I wonder how God's gonna feed us. (laughs) She's not passive in that, but here's what she does. She does the next thing. She does the next thing. What's the next thing? (laughs) Gotta go out and find some food. We're gonna go out, I'm gonna go out and glean. I'm gonna go out and find, pray. I'm I'm trusting God to provide somebody in whose eyes I would find favor that God's grace was gonna come. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna do the next thing. And listen, oftentimes when things are so cloudy and so stormy in our lives, we just wanna kick our feet up and be passive and say, I'm just gonna wait on God to deliver, but sometimes God delivers through us actively being a part of the process and doing the next thing. What's the next thing in your life right now? What's the next step to take for you? No matter how cloudy things are with your job, no matter how cloudy things are in your marriage, no matter how cloudy things are in your your relationships, no matter how cloudy things are, it seems that God is so far removed, what's the next thing? And instead of waiting on God to stoke our hearts with feelings, right? Not only do we do the next thing, but we do the right thing. We do the right thing. Because listen, the, the providence of God and God's purposes being undiscernible in your life in a particular season is not a pause button for you and I's obedience. Right? Just, just because things are cloudy and things are hard, things are challenging, doesn't mean that God says, hey, listen, you got a little, little DVR for your life, right? You push pause. That's not how it works. But what's the right thing? I don't know what that is for you. But here's here's what I would encourage you to do is to begin to pray out your emotions, rest in the presence of God even when you can't discern his purpose and whatever he puts in front of you, whatever he has put in front of you, you do that next. And you don't push pause on your obedience but you continue to press in to loving, honoring, and serving this God whose providence is provided for your part in progress and your perfection. Let me pray for us. Father, today, we acknowledge that we are not in control, God, that regardless of our agendas and regardless of our plans and regardless of all the things that we have set forth for ourselves, that we are not in control. God, that doesn't make us passive in the process, but ultimately, you are the determiner of our steps, God. You are the determiner of our future. 
You're the one who's governing all things in our personal lives and on a global scale for your glory and for our good. And God, in those moments in which we cannot see it, and those moments in which we wonder what good's gonna come out of this, God, would you help us to rest in your presence in our lives, God, knowing that you are our friend in Christ, that you are our Father in Christ, that through your Son, you've provided for our pardon, for our progress, and for our perfection, God. And Father, there is nothing that can separate us from you. That truth in Romans would sear deeply into our hearts. And then we would come to you on our knees and cry out before you. And then we would get off our knees and we would do the next thing. Not waiting for feelings, but doing the right thing as we move forward. God, give us clarity in our lives. Regardless of where we're coming from, God, and what we're going back to, of what the next thing and the right thing is for us. We pray in Jesus' name.